you can almost use a lot of the, the theosophical ideas and then read them into the letters of Paul. Hi, everybody, and welcome back to Mind Matters. Uh, today, we're going to discuss a very interesting book by Arthur Versluis uh, called Theosophia. Uh, and uh, with us today uh, are Harrison, Adam, and Ivan. So welcome to the show, everybody. And uh, yeah, maybe I give a, a very short uh, intro. Um, Theosophia is the title of the book. And that, um, if I'm not mistaken, uh, means something like uh, the love of God, um, as opposed to theologia, perhaps, or theology, uh, which is more like a, a science uh, of God, if you will. And uh, the book is about what one might call um, Christian esotericism or Christian mysticism. So basically uh, the kind of uh, a mystical tradition within mostly Christianity, although he goes a bit into the Kabbalah and that sort of thing as well, uh, and Sufism, but it's mainly about um, uh, the Christian tradition that most people, including myself, I don't know about you guys, um, didn't know too much about. Um, it's kind of an interesting world to dive into. And uh, yeah, and, and he calls it, or it's, I suppose, generally called these days uh, the uh, theosophical tradition. And it is, I think maybe we should clear up like a few names and terms um, because there are all kinds of terms floating around like Gnosticism, for example, uh, beginning with like the original so-called heretic uh, Marcion and the Neoplatonists, uh, Hermeticism. And uh, yeah, and, and to my mind, it although they, these are somewhat distinct uh, things and distinct uh, currents um, in the history of Christianity, uh, one could say that um, they are all kind of um, based on on the idea uh, on a more mystical approach, I would say, uh, to to Christianity as opposed to a more like formal institu institutionalized uh, dogmatic uh, kind of what we might call today mainstream religion or mainstream mainstream Christianity. Uh, so that's kind of my take on it. And uh, maybe to kick off uh, the discussion, um, uh, the main uh, theme, I think, that that runs uh, through this book and at least in part through these various uh, um, religious currents, let's say, is sort of the idea uh, that you can actually uh, move closer to God, if you if you will, um, which is not really like that radical, but that you can also actually have a personal relationship with God. And uh, this is, of course, uh, present, you know, in, in all religions and part of mainstream Christianity as well, but not so much in the sense of uh, this direct wire, like this direct, direct hot wire, you know, to heaven, if you will, like the, the direct line to God. 
this is something that is usually not emphasized that much in uh, not, neither in Catholicism uh, nor in pro Protestantism. Uh, so I would say in in Protestantism you you have more this uh, uh, more let's say rigid um, idea of uh, of scripture and literalism in in many forms and uh, also a, a more uh, earthy idea of of the rebirth in in Christ uh, which can be affected in some evang evangelical sects within uh, or like very fast uh, <laughs> if i understand uh, that correctly and in catholicism um there's perhaps more emphasis on on traditional and traditional dogma traditional exegesis and uh, scholarship which is considered kind of authoritative um so you have that body of of authoritative knowledge um not, and not only the scripture and and this sort of like theosophia or um, mysticism or how, however you want to call it um, is more about like finding uh, a personal uh, way um, that is not necessarily so strictly um, dogmatized let's say and uh, like find that channel you know to the to the higher realms um, within you by certain spiritual practice and by a certain spiritual path so that you can actually have a direct insight um if you will and and as as such move closer to god and and many of the authors that Veslu's uh cites um they actually um derive their knowledge or claim they derive their insights um directly from from the higher realms so to say and, and oftentimes founded a new a kind of school or a new movement uh, within mainstream Christianity or like uh, some were like kicked out, I guess. Um, and uh, yeah, so maybe that's just a few remarks to, to kick off the discussion, but maybe you, you mm -hmm. guys have, mm -hmm. have some other things that you, that caught your eye. Yeah. Well, first, just a, a slight correction, I think, because Theosophia, I, th I think you, you called it a uh, love of God, but that would be Theophilia. Theosophia is uh, wisdom of God, right? Yeah. Yeah, because because Sophia is the the figure, like personified wisdom, as in um, you know some of the some of the Old Testament texts where Sophia is presented as like the the wisdom of God, as a as like the personification of a female personification of of wisdom, and so she is kind of. <clears throat> one of the one of the figures, one of the um, like idea complexes that uh, that the theosophers focused on was Sophia and gaining access to this wisdom, which was like the um, you know she wasn't it, she, Sophia wasn't on the same level as like the Holy Trinity in in their theology, but um, almost like a still a kind of personification and like the mirror of God. So it was like you gazed, Sophia would, would reflect wisdom to you. And at, at least, uh, I think that's what they were saying, but, uh, um, but yeah, so yeah, right. that's, no, that, that is, yeah, so. yeah, yeah, no, that, that's, that's obviously true. I mean, uh, um, uh, and, uh, I guess the distinction is, um, between like, uh, 
you know, like a more wisdom oriented approach um, and, uh, and a more like, I don't know, I, I kind of like came to my mind this distinction between theology, you know, because that's what we usually um, have <laughs> and, um, and more this mystical approach to, to grow towards the, yeah, to direct wisdom, let's say. And the cool thing, or one of the cool things about the theosophers that I found, and this is something that Versluis gets to in his other book, Wisdom's Children. So I've read Wisdom's Children, and I haven't read Theosophia, and vice, uh, like the opposite for you guys. So you guys have all read Theosophia, and I haven't, and you and you haven't read Wisdom's Children. So maybe we can me meld them together and, uh, um, you know, share our share our Sophias, but. One of the things that comes through in that book that he points out, so he talks about this tradition, um, all of the the currents that you mentioned, Luke, like Gnosticism and um, Neoplatonism and, um, you know, there's even some Zoroastrianism and Kabbalism and alchemy. And so all these kinds of traditions that uh, rose up at various times. But the interesting things about the, the interesting thing about the sophiologists or the theosophers is that they're relatively recent. So, I mean, Boma lived, you know, died in 1624. So in the, the, what you could, you know, arbitrarily call the modern period, at least, uh, you know, modern in terms of the enlightenment and, and uh, into, into the present. And so when you're looking at all those older traditions, you know, you look at the Nag Hammadi texts or the, the church fathers writing about the Gnostics or, um, you know, even early Christian texts like, you know, the letters of Paul, where you've got this stuff and they're not, um, well, there's a lot of mystery to them. You know, you can read them to be like, well, what was really going on here? And you can try to figure it out. You can try to figure out all the things you believe. But here, here we have like a, a mystical tradition that is extremely, well, comparatively well documented. So you can read, you know, you can read these guys' letters, you can read their, you know, voluminous works, and you can actually get a clearer picture about what they were all about. Whereas for Gnosticism, for example, you have to kind of, have to kind of guess. Um, you've got, you know, these Gnostic gospels and, and texts, but um, it's kind of, it's further removed from us and from our understanding than something like, like, uh, um, like these guys, like Portage and, and Buma and Gictel and etc. And so if we go on the assumption that there's something similar in all these traditions, some kind of like truth that they're all accessing or expressing in different ways, then you can almost, uh, you can almost just go straight to the theosophers and be like, okay, well, you know, it seems like maybe, maybe that's what the, you know, the Gnostics were talking about when they were, you know, referencing these different ideas or, or you go, you can, the interesting, one of the interesting things I found is if you, you, you can almost use a lot of the, the theosophical ideas and then read them into the letters of Paul. Now that might not be a, um, like a, an academically, um, accepted way to do things like, uh, there might be some logical problems with that, but I think it actually works because a lot of the stuff Paul says is pretty obscure. And I mean, you can just look at all of the, the thousands of, of theologians and, you know, academic, um, you know, 
religious scholars who look at what Paul was saying. And of course, there's tons of different stuff. And then you find like a guy like Timothy Ashworth, who wrote Paul's Necessary Sin, which we've all read, where it's like, okay, he seems to be, he seems to have found something that's actually genuine and right there at the heart of things that uh, that most other scholars have missed. Whereas all the stuff that Ashworth says is kind of, it kind of just pops right out of the page when you read about the theosophers. And it's like, oh, well, that's what, that's just clearly what they were talking about. And yet a guy like Ashford, who hasn't read presumably any of the, any of the theosophers is like, oh, uh, you know, I've done all of this close analysis and of the, of the words Paul uses. And, and you can just look at the, the entire process he comes through to come to all these conclusions. And all of that stuff is kind of just plainly stated in the theosophers, at least from, from my reading. So I think that's almost an, it's an interesting form of confirmation where if you, if you really dig into Paul, like if, like, uh, Eng, trolls, Engberg Peterson and Timothy Ashworth and some others do, and the, the conclusions they come to, it's like, it's a, it's a real effort to try to come to those conclusions from reading Paul. It doesn't, it's not necessarily, uh, well, it doesn't just jump off the page at you. Whereas it jumps off the page when you read the Theosophers, so I think that uh, I think that the Theosophers were tapping into the same thing that was kind of at the at the root of the the very beginnings of the of the Christian tradition. So whatever Paul was experiencing and the things he was trying to put into words and the like the images that he was using and to to describe um, these various ideas, these various processes, these various like transformations that occur within the um, you know the human being. All that stuff is also in these writings, which I found just very interesting um, because it's in a more modern context and it's a bit more understandable. Um, of course, well, I don't know if Versluis said this in Theosophia, but in Wisdom's Children, he points out, of course, that Burma is notoriously hard to read. People have no idea, no idea what he's writing about. But Versluis writes, well, it's actually... It's actually pretty simple. Once you, this you guy. Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like Versus Versus says, once you get some basic ideas, then it's actually pretty easy to follow what Boomer was talking about. But you have to understand the basics, and so that's what Wisdom's Children is about: is to try to present those basics. And I found that, um, well, I just want to show two two more little books. Just a quick question, Luke: Is that in the original German? What you just held up? Yeah, that's, the original, that's just, actually a, faxi a facsimile edition of the original uh, edition when it first came out. So I had I had a kind of like a a real uh, it, a, it was a real tread, uh, you know, like you have this cool. uh, old school German <laughs> rune typo, you know, which which I can read, but it is it is a bit this can be sometimes a bit hard. Um, and it's, it's just like this super old language, you know, but, but it's pretty understandable. So it's not, uh, and, and it's kind of interesting to get the vibe, you know, mm -hmm. like the, mm -hmm. of, of but, this guy. And I thought actually Harrison, you know, um, when you said it's, uh, 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 it is difficult to understand, but once you have some basic it, basics, it gets easier. And I, I felt the same, you know, um, just even by, um studying paul and and all the things that we that we've done here you know um like get some basic uh concepts you know straight then it becomes much easier because you just you can make the connections right and mm -hmm. uh 
and mm-hmm. and for example in this uh, the way to christ i think uh, uh is the english title i suppose um it's it's pretty straightforward there's seven books you know and each book describes you know one part of the journey mm-hmm. <laughs> towards christ mm-hmm. and and you since you know when you have the reference of like different like or like the the spiritual path let's say in what is entailed it's it's not so hard to make sense of it so mm-hmm. yeah well in just on that same note about the old german the first english translations of of Burma, um i can't i think some were done pretty close to when he lived but then william laud translated his entire works into four volumes i can't remember in what century that was if it was the 1700s not sure um but when you look at those, it's in the the old English. So it's almost, you you encounter a similar difficulty because like the S's are like F's. So you you have to kind of retrain yourself to read because you're you're mispronouncing words in your head and be like, what are they? Oh, those are S's. Yeah. Okay. So it's kind of hard to read those, those editions, but there are, um, those translations are still you know, there's tons of reprints of them, like either for free online or in those facsimile editions on uh, on Amazon. And but 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 they, at least in modern typography, so you don't have to be reading the you know the Fs. <laughs> but uh, but there there are two two little books just on that subject that I was going to mention. Um, this first one, Versluce edited. It's just a tiny little one um, called The Wisdom of of Jacob Boma, and he he went out of his way to just choose like the the some of the clearest and most kind of practical writings to put in here so this one's actually really easy really easy to read and he kind of translated it himself so that um the language itself is is simple as well um yeah so that was that's a good one and i think this one um this one's called a christian spiritual psychology um, by Thomas Isham and edited by Robert Foss, who is the guy that um, you know, co-wrote Conversations with God with him. That was the conversation that Versluce had, the man with whom Versluce had a conversation. And this one is a commentary on what I think is one of the parts in The Way to Christ on the four temperaments. So its its full title is a treatise of the four complexions or tentament or te- or temperaments or a consolatory instruction for a sad and assaulted heart in the in the time of temptation showing whence sadness naturally ariseth and how the assaulting happeneth the whole confirmed by several pertinent and comfortable texts so that's the title of <laughs> of this one and it's actually really cool so it's a it's basically uh, a commentary on you know you know the the psychology of the time, which was based on the four temperaments, like the four humors. So you had the you know the the um, the choleric, the melancholic, um, the phlegmatic, and the sanguine. Um, so you had your um, your earthy, you know, earthy, fiery, airy, and watery personalities. And um, so it's been it's quite cool to read and kind of try to kind of compare it to modern personality types and try to see where, you know, where the differences and similarities are. And, um, it's pretty, it's, it's, I found it interesting because, um, you know, most personality types are what Dabrowski would say unilevel, you know, even the, the, the big five, right? So it's pretty much just there's humanity on a flat plane and you just have, you know, positive and negative, 
um, values for each of these five personality traits. Then when you look at someone like Dabrowski, he's he's more interested in the multi-level aspects. So so he's got okay everyone on a, on a certain level, but then there's the the disintegrations, which kind of place you in a in higher levels. And the way that Bluma presents the four temperaments is kind of like it's approaching that multi-level thing where he talks about the melancholic personality. And for him, the melancholic personality is the one um, kind of the one that's most predisposed to um, the kind of religious experience or spiritual religious experiences and transformations that he's talking about. And that kind of ties into Dabrowski really well when, because Dabrowski was talking about what he called, um, um, you know, psychoneuroses, which were the, the mental, uh, mental, emotional kind of difficulties and struggles and, and inner conflicts that arise and which lead to, to personality growth. And so that's the one that Buma highlights also mostly because Buma himself was a melancholic personality. And so those are the ones that are, you know, melancholic, you know, depressive, um, assaulted by, uh, you know, sadness and self-reproach and perhaps excessive guilt. And um, this, in, con in contrast to the other personality types, so for example, the choleric is the fiery one. So the fire, the fiery personality is the, the kind of um, imperturbable, emotional, um, you know, puts them like hardworking, puts themselves forward, um, not, not really troubled by sadness, um, a pretty stable personality type. And then you have like the watery personality, which is more, well, or the sanguine, yeah, the, the, the watery or the sanguine personality, which is happy and easy to get along with and kind of like states flow through them like water. Um, but then he talks about these different personality types and how, how the, um, uh, their different receptivities to the influences of the devil, you know, the, and so the, the kind of, um, the kind of attacks that the devil or traps that the devil lays for people. And then how these different personality types will respond, you know, which ones are more, um, um, more susceptible or, or not. So for instance, for instance, the fiery personality says that, well, the, 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 the devil doesn't need to attack the fiery personality so much because the, like the fiery personality is mostly in line with what the devil wants them to do anyways. They just feel it as their own. And the, the melancholic personality is, is at risk of, you know, listening to certain suggestions from the, from the devil, from, uh, but, um, but is the most aware of the process and therefore the least, the least likely to, um, to listen, like to fall for it essentially. But so he, he talks about the, the dangers and the, 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 like the pros and cons of each personality in reference to like demonic infestation, which is actually pretty cool, but it's all on a psychological level, um, which is interesting. Um, it's the, it's the things that the, you know, the devil will, will suggest to you the different, um, the different, things that will be insinuated in your mind through the, like the wrathful imagination. So it all has to do with the, the, the influences that you open yourself up to, or that you accept within your mind, and then you make your own and which path that leads you on in life. So which choices you then make as a response. So actually, you know, really cool, really cool stuff that maybe we'll get into more in a, at a future date. And, uh, well, so, um, 
Just to add something uh, to your introduction, Luke, about uh, this study of theosophy, this survey of theosophers that uh, that have come at um, our understanding of uh, one's personal connection to God um, and to the cosmic and to knowledge. Um, you know, I when I saw the title of this book. I immediately thought of uh, the theosophy of uh, Madame Blavatsky, which is most popularized and and recognized in the West as the kind of authority on theosophy. And uh, having read a little bit like decades ago and, and listened to a lecture or two, uh, I, was, um, I was wondering what uh, Versluis's take on all this was and his research. Well, we had some inkling of it uh, in his conversations in apocalyptic times, um, which touches upon a lot of this thinking. Uh, and, you know, admittedly, I, I didn't go very deep into a study of theosophy, uh, way back when, but, uh, just for, for those of us who are, who are coming to this with some, you know, background in, in Blavatsky and, and judge and, and that kind of, um, that lens, uh, which is, uh, looks to Eastern philosophy and religion as well. Um, and verse Lewis says this right off the bat in the beginning of the book, uh, th this ain't your, your dad's theosophy. This is, um, this is a, a, an academic, but also a very kind of, um, enlivened, uh, discussion of the subject by a guy who really knows what he's talking about, or, you know, at, it would seem so to me um, because peppered throughout this book is uh, verse Lewis is making these concepts his own and um, adapting it uh, to his own understanding of these times in which we live, uh, basically making this knowledge uh, the, these uh, these voices throughout the, the last several hundred years um uh, alive with re with relevance, so it it's not only conversations in apocalyptic times uh, that Verse Lewis manages to uh, make relevant all of this fount of of wisdom and knowledge, but he really does so with with this book, and I would say one of the virtues of it um, is something that you've alluded to in in your reading of Wisdom's Children, Harrison, and that is that. <clears throat> You know, all of these writers and thinkers, some of which were, were drawing upon Burma and and other thinkers and adding their own um, their own take on things. But what Verse Lewis manages to affirm again and again is that this is a kind of a cross disciplinary study of gnosis, of uh, of uh, theophany, and you know, all of these uh, people. Have have been coming to the the truth or the heart of the matter, the 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 eyes of the heart, as Verse Lewis would say, um, from their own perspective. But they all have these incredible commonalities, right? So, uh, oh, there was something you said a few minutes ago, Harrison, about um, oh, it was about Ashworth. So Ashworth does this incredibly rigorous. Um, examination, this comparative literature examination of, of, 
of Paul, right? He drills down sentence by sentence, word by word to, to discover the real meaning, the essence of, of what Paul was trying to say. And, and I think one of your points was that it, it's, there are these commonalities uh, in Nashworth, in his conclusions, in what he was trying to convey to the reader about Paul's message, to all of this material. And, and Verse Lewis's point is, you know, you, you, you look at mystical uh, Protestantism and you look at uh, uh, certain dimensions of Catholicism and you look at certain dimensions of Eastern Orthodox Christianity and you look at, uh, you know, you mentioned Sufism earlier and, and Kabbalism and they're all, you know, um, they're all different parts of the elephant. They're all kind of describing the same or similar things, um, each of which come to, come to it from their own perspective. And uh, we, can, we can talk about that. I hope we do. Um, so let me interject a bit on Ashworth mm -hmm. that, I, that we forgot to mention is that in the, in the introduction to his book, he lays out his, his kind of impetus for doing this research and writing the book, and that was his own mystical experience. So he had his own mystical experience, and then he essentially, like, even though he doesn't explicitly read it into his analysis and his interpretation of what Paul's writing, you can tell obviously that that the he's guided by the Holy Spirit. The, yeah, he's guided. He's guided by the Holy Spirit. He well, the that experience he finds that he ends up finding that that same um, like whatever that thing is, whatever that uh, that experience was, and whatever the the conclusions he brought from that experience, he essentially, he's essentially saying, well, that was the origin of Paul's, of, of Paul's theology too, was that experience. So the, the commonality that allowed him to, to find that stuff in Paul was his own um, mystical experience. And that's the kind of the central thing about these theosophers is that what they all, like none of them are dogmatists. None of them are, were out to create a new a new sect or a new religion, or to even go against their the religion they found themselves in, like Lutheranism for for um, for Boma. But they had a very like almost scientific empirical approach. They said that okay, d you don't have to believe anything I'm saying. What I'm what I'm showing you is like the the truth that I've experienced for myself. And if you are able to to have like have a have experiences of this sort and verify it, then it'll become yours. But you have to verify it for yourself. So there was this kind of um, this kind of empiricism to to their mysticism that um, that was kind of anti dogmatic. But at the same time, um, you know, the, at the same time had an influence probably on what uh, you know maybe shaping the interpretation of those of those experiences to kind of conform with the, the imagery and the, you know, the language that had developed as a kind of its own tradition, because the, like Buma did kind of create his own tradition, if not in the same sense as a, you know, a more, a more dogmatic tradition. But, um, <clears throat> well, along yeah. those lines, uh, let me read a passage here that speaks, uh, almost directly to what you just said, Harrison, the word, quote-unquote apocalypse in Greek means, quote-unquote, unveiling or, quote-unquote, revelation. And it is in this sense that the theosophic apocalypse of the heart ought to be understood. Mm 
It may be useful here to quote Portage directly in order to explain this unveiling further. For theosophers do not believe that revelation takes place only once in history or only in the past for them. Divine revelation is something we are each enjoined to experience for ourselves. In fact, if we do not experience revelation directly, we cannot be said to really understand our own tradition. Portage wrote, in a defense against orthodox attacks against him, of how he had the invisible worlds unveiled to him. I say then that there were two invisible internal principles opened and discovered to us, which may be called the Mundi Idealis, being two spiritual worlds extending and penetrating throughout this whole visible creation. Now these two principles or worlds seemed very much different from one another as having contrary qualities and operations by which they work on this visible creation. Some creatures in them being poisonful and noxious, others wholesome and harmless. And, you know, I, I could just keep on reading the, you know, the, the, uh, the, the ideas and the quotes that uh, Versuas draws upon to make his points and to flush them out are wonderful. But, you know, the point being that this is, um, that direct experience or revelation uh, or something that that opens up the the spirit of inquiry and um, and the pursuit of greater understanding and connection uh, is is what he's getting at. So this is one of three paths that he mentions. Um, another one being an understanding of nature. Um, of commune, communing with nature and of seeing the divine in nature. Um, and he makes mention of the uh, alchemist Paraskelis, or some pronouncing Paracelsus. That, Paracelsus, thank you. Uh, as, as somebody who, um, who exemplified this, this path. And the other thing was just reading your Bible and, uh, and reading those who, who had an insightful understanding of, of the message of the divine and adopting it, uh, for oneself and, um, and even kind of, uh, experience of experiencing a vicarious, um, uh, revelation of your own through the writings of, of these other folks. So, uh, I was wondering if there was any comment on any of those. Well, there was <coughs> parts, uh, there's a couple of things there. Uh, one that struck me, um, similar to what you were talking about with Ashworth, uh, having this religious experience and then being able to come at Paul and recognize in Paul the same kind of epiphany of sorts. And, and like you said, that this seems to be the commonality between all of them is that they all have these intensely personal experiences of some kind with something higher than themselves that gives them this new perspective on, on not only their own individual experience as a human being, but also the cosmos itself as being something far grander and more majestic than uh, inert uh, dead matter. Uh, and so that becomes an interesting 
uh, thing in its own right, how all of these different people, regardless of the, whether or not they had any influence on each other, where it seemed, and it does seem to be that many of these authors didn't know about anyone else. They just each had their own kind of epiphany. And then later somebody else realized, oh, this guy is very similar to this other person. Um, though there are some delect direct lineages from like Yokobuma to Gictol to so on and so forth. Um, but what I found interesting was that the images or the visions that these people would have seem to be connected to the beliefs that they had already held. So it reinvigorated their own belief in their religion, but it, it gave it new life. It gave it wings to fly. And so that was one thing that Versluis talked about in Theosophia was that um, Theosophy was not something that can stand on its own, similar to what he said about Platonism, where Platonism didn't really last long on its own, but was able to live on by being attached to G these other religions, like uh, the Abrahamic religions. Uh, specifically, but that's not to say that there's not anything else in any of the other uh, religions out there. Um, and then tying that in with um, what you were just talking about, about the, the three different kind of ways um, that Buma had talked about where someone can develop themselves, where he talked about, um, you know, studying your Bible, praying, and then studying the book of nature which again comes to this idea that life and nature is more than just, you know, the things that you see, it's part of this grand hierarchy. And he uses that term as well. And some of the, the authors talk about something similar where there is this, um, there's this hierarchy within nature where the higher can inform the lower all the way down. And so part of our, purpose here as human beings is to uh, inform and cultivate um, what's beneath us. So, you know, like our, um, our cities, our houses, our, you know, animals and uh, those sorts of things where we are able to cultivate a relationship with all of this in a way that brings balance to the force. <laughs> uh, so to speak. And I thought I found all of this uh, incredibly bewildering in a sense, because it's all so uh, on the one sense, like abstract, but in a, but at the same time, very personal. And just to throw something else out there real quick, um, you brought up Blavatsky, but then you didn't uh, bring up what he had to say. Because uh, Versluis actually, you know, brings up Blavatsky as a particular point of contention where, like you said, you know, this isn't your grandfather's uh, theosophy. He called Blavatsky a watered-down Buddhist. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so for anybody who was wondering, that's uh, that seems to be where, yeah, that's all he has to say ab about that. He's like, well, she's a watered-down Buddhist, so moving on. Well, on, on the uh, subject of... No, I, I want to... Sorry, sorry. No, go ahead, Luke. Um, yeah, I know about the, the, you know, mystical experience that you kind of talked about. And um, 
I found it kind of interesting um, the Wes Lewis and Take, and I suppose also like the the uh, Theosophists um, that uh, there's as you said a kind of like a hierarchy, and there's actually something higher that can basically teach us directly, right? And that uh, actually that's really crucial. And um, but uh, it is not, you know, as in my understanding um, of what he said, it's not just, you know, like these grand mystical experiences that, you know, we usually think, or if we hear the word like mystical experience, we think of something like totally trippy, you know, like you go like out there and, uh, you know, have this massive illumination, you know, and you are changed in the blink of an instant and you come back like a sage or whatever, you know. But that doesn't really seem how how it works. I mean, if we take again Ashworth and uh, and these guys, and the, the interesting fact that they all came kind of like to similar like ideas, right? Even though there might not be like a direct line, um, but all you know had had this sort of direct experience and and contact. And I just wanted to read one small uh, little quote. I think it's from Vers Lewis. Um, about that and he says we are capable of receiving only the revelation that corresponds to what we can bear within ourselves uh, and i found that uh, kind of interesting because that seems to um uh, how you say um it there is not no not necessarily like this clear this clear limit or this clear cut between like you know like the aim the higher angel is teaching me you know like and your own efforts to um learn basically and and this that's how i understand this you know this quote that um you actually there's something you you have to bring to the table as well you know and you use the language you have you use the the knowledge you have you use the books your experience like all of it uh and so that you can basically be receptible uh, to um to that higher kind of knowledge you know and but it it doesn't necessarily come in the form of an angel you know showing up at your door and and like giving you a lesson you know it's like it can be a more subtle affair and and i think that's um kind of good to make that point um so that makes it more accessible right so we don't uh need to have all like trippy uh crazy like Damascus like conversion <laughs> events or something like that although that that seems to happen you know but uh, uh there's also like um, this subtle growth in in understanding that is somehow what like inspired as well by something higher maybe you know it's it's a, it's a, it's a more subtle affair but then if you follow that path uh you you will the, the the all the knowledge all the ideas they will kind of like uh, flow together and uh, you you will come to a to a similar similar insights as like people across time you know that express it in their own kind of ways and I think the theosophists um, and also what I read from Burma so far um, they actually try to 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 describe that kind of path right it's just um, there's no recipe and it's difficult to put in words, but uh, they each in their own way, they they kind of um, describe techniques. You know, Burma talks about like, you know, the right mindset, we might say today, right? The, the 
um, sort of like gelassenheit in Germany, what's that like a, a certain relaxedness, you know, in, in, in the state of mind and, and how you prepare for prayer, you know, like how you get, um, how you avoid the traps and, and pitfalls of your psychological states and things and what kind of knowledge is out there, you know, um, to like nay contemplating nature reading and, and all that sort of thing. And then they all, um, yeah. And, and there, there, I think what, what I found interesting reading that book, um, is that it becomes clear that there is a way, you know, it's, it's, it's not a, a recipe. It's not like do this, do that. And, uh, follow this dogma, follow that, and boom, you know, like instant rebirth in Christ. Boom. <laughs> um, but boom. Uh, yeah, but it is out there. Well, just to add to that a little bit, because I, I like what you said about the subtlety of um, how all of this would seem to work. You know, we're, we're not all going to have, you know, this shaft of light, you know, smacking us upside the forehead uh, to see the a vision of, of Christ telling us that. This is the way, but rather, um, you know, the, I'm sure a lot of us have experienced um, uh, intuitions or synchronicities or f fortuitous occurrences and events that have somehow managed to uh, indicate a, a certain direction or a, a certain body of knowledge or uh, a certain understanding. And I think um, that part of how this works is that it's, it, it is really subtle, but that the more we, we make these, um, these understandings a part of our thinking, at least as possibilities, uh, the more open perhaps we become to receiving more uh, and to, finding those things and those answers and those bits of inspiration that um, propel us forward with ourselves. And there was the, um, like another interesting aspect of, you know, like you're talking about the subtleties and not everything has to be a vision. Um, a number of the, the authors that he talks about say themselves that, you know, you can't control like the vision things that like those kind of actual, like vivid imaginative experiences are things that come in their own time and in their own way. And there's no way to, you know, like you said, there's no, there's no way to force it. There's no recipe for it. And, you know, you can't just like take some ayahuasca, sit in a circle, play some drums, and then God will show himself to you. It, you know, if, if that's going to be something that happens, it's going to happen, um, by the nature of your quest and development. Like for me personally, I was, uh, you know, at one point researching, uh, UFO phenomenon and trying to figure out what was going on and what was the real truth of it. And one night I was sitting in my room in my bed and I was, overwhelmed by trying to come to the truth of the matter and asking God for help. And so I prayed to God asking, you know, for help because I, you know, I was struggling and couldn't figure out how to do it. And I became overwhelmed with this white light that in this feeling of, of love that told me to, you know, be patient, you know, you will, 
you will find it. Um, and Boma, when he first had his experience, he said that it was after having thought about what was the, the nature of evil, why is there so much evil in the world? And it was only after struggling with, with coming to, to terms with all of that, um, he wasn't searching for anything of a imaginative, um, of an imaginative sort. It just happened to be how the universe or God spoke to him personally. Um, and I think that's, that's also interesting in, in light of the fact that, you know, maybe, maybe sometimes you do need a, a a vivid experience, but then other times maybe you just need little nudges, you know, maybe most of the time you just need little nudges here and there. And so that's why you don't get the, you know, the trippy experiences all the time, because that's really just not necessary. And maybe to, to seek that out becomes similar to like the new age movement where all they're doing is, you know, smoking weed or DMT or tripping on acid or whatever it is, they're, they're seeking experience. Um, rather than true transformation. And so that's, that's one of the reasons why they don't tell you to seek it, but rather let it come in its own time if it's going to happen and focus more on your daily prayers, on being a, well, force for good, um, or a, an avenue by which the Holy Spirit can, can work through you. And those are two very different things. Yeah, there was... In Wisdom's Children, I couldn't find it, I was looking for it, but there, there is a paragraph in there where Versluce says the same thing, and I think, you know, quotes some of the theosophers about religious, about the visionary experience and how they weren't, um, um, I can't remember the, the language that he used, but basically he was saying their, their attitude was the same. It's like, you, you shouldn't be searching after you know, visions and, and mystical experiences. That's kind of like a form of, of spiritual narcissism. And so they actually did, even though they, all of them, you know, talked about all their visions and had them all the time, you know, they, they didn't actually recommend, you know, um, that wasn't, that wasn't the most important thing, um, for them was, was the visionary aspect. It was actually just, uh, um, well, there were other things that kind of took precedence over, just, uh, you know, having a, a crazy trip. Oh, well, so one thing I wanted to come back to, um, I can't remember what exactly prompted this thought, but, um, <clears throat> well, I guess it was the, the, the idea that, um, or the, the reality that a lot of these mystical experiences do kind of confirm each other in some sense. Um, whether that's in a particular tradition where the, you know, the imagery and the language might be the same, provoking that kind of reinvigoration that you were talking about or between different religious traditions that might have different imagery and different language, but that um, kind of like on a meta level seem to, to share this, a, a similar um, like essence between the, those seemingly different phenomena, or, you know, they might just be very similar on the surface of things. Um, <clears throat> and that comes down to, you know, this idea in the philosophy of science of the intelligibility of the world. Like the reason science works is because as far as we can tell, the world is intelligible. That means we are able to understand it to some degree. Um, well, and you might argue even to a very large degree, like that's the reason 
math works. That, that's the reason math is like inescapably or intrinsically coupled with physics, because when you're studying the physical world and you you see the regularities in the physical world, those regularities can be described by mathematics. And so there's this, you know, what some philosophers and scientists consider a, a weird, unexplainable match between physics and like pure abstract mathematics. It's like, well, how do those things connect? Well, at root, it suggests logically that the, the world is intelligible. We can come to know it. We can understand it. We can describe, you know, we can discover and then describe these mathematical, physical relationships and, um, and processes, which is a remarkable thing, even though it, you know, it just strikes most people most of the time as just commonplace um, and, and self-evident. But it really is quite, quite remarkable. And so if the, if the world is intelligible and if there is more to the world than just physics, for instance, um, and that would seem to be again logically entailed is that there there must be there must be a reason for physics for instance and there must be a reason for the the coupling between mathematics and physics and th so that would suggest that there's more to reality and if there's more to reality than what can be described physically then presumably that bigger reality should also be intelligible and so what the what mysticism seems to suggest is that mysticism um, is a means by which that uh, those other aspects of reality are intelligible and that they can be experienced in some way and then under and, and then understood in some way and translated into you know language in some way even if like all the mystics say it's very difficult to translate these things into language well they're doing it all the time if they're writing these books so it's at least possible to uh, um, it's at least possible to to capture the shadow of the experience in language, and and if we trust what they're saying, it will lead to actual knowledge and actual understanding, which would just suggest to me that there's um, that it's it's both the intelligi the intelligibility of the world would seem to imply to me um, a reason to take mysticism seriously, and the the mystical tradition would seem to support and suggest the further intelligibility of the world. Um, so I just wanted to throw that idea out there and just a full disclosure that some people can t tell I've probably can, some people can probably tell that I've been reading Chris Langan, um, just but through that, <laughs> through that. So I'll just get that, just throw that out there. So, so that uh, everyone knows. No, but, but uh, everyone knows. I find it, it's, re it's a really, uh, it's a really good, I never made the connection between the intelligibility, you know, of the universe, which is like this uh, pretty um, standard and interesting argument that people make um, for, you know, like that. Uh, I mean, some some Christian apologists even make that, you know, use that argument for as an argument for the for the existence of God, basically, right? Because it's it's not really self-evident. In, in some weird sense, we as conscious beings are part of that, you know, like higher realm that can actually read, you know, uh, reality and it's kind of connected and, um, and uh, yeah. And then I think what you were alluding to was uh, what Wes Lewis also uh, mentioned and this extrasensory perception, basically. And the idea that we, that if the higher world is intelligible, that there is actually a way to 
to in a sense perceive it you know but not uh not using our standard senses and and whitehead for example and various other philosophers i think uh, uh william james as well they they thought that such a thing exists um that there is such a thing as extrasensory uh perception and and i think the uh it is actually a pretty subtle affair that um has more to do with um uh with i mean sensations and feelings but not like the our usual emotions um like we have in in daily life uh but a more subtle thing which which is seems kind of like obvious that it would be that right because if you if you can use your your regular senses um why should it be like the voice of god like literally speaking you know into your ear so it's uh, uh it is more something that um that you trans translate basically sort of feeling or sensation that you translate into words you know in, in uh, yourself in a sense you know? so it's it's a subtle thing and and that's why it's so contentious i guess and some people just deny it you know and the initial sort of thing and why it's kind of mysterious and and there's also like a huge variety of um uh of results right i mean there's like um even though they might all come together on certain themes and certain basic ideas um the content itself you know the language can be wildly different the the examples and the um uh, you know like the the expressions can 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 be like totally different and things like that so i think that's good to keep in mind even though it might all come together especially within a certain cultural realm right because we are talking more or less about western mysticism here um but of course in um in it gets a bit different in other cultural spheres um but that would be only logical to my mind right if if you perceive the higher realm through this extra sensual very subtle um sensations and you kind of make sense with your whole being as a being in time you know like in in a certain culture in a certain tradition um and it, it's basically a product of of this trans translation process well i know we're we're sort of coming up at, towards the end of our program today um and there was one more quote by verse lewis i thought to read that uh i think is pretty good at giving um some amount of guidance uh, to folks who, um, who think on these issues. Uh, and what he says is here, perchance we begin to see why Burma said that spiritual people should not be concerned about the vices of their age, nor criticize others, but rather should look inward to their own spiritual practice for what matters for each of us in the final analysis is not whether we have managed to impose on others our own vision of how the world should be, but rather the degree to which we have reformed ourselves and become vehicles for spiritual truth and grace, which is what you were alluding to earlier, Adam. What matters too for the world at large is not how we have imposed our will upon it, but rather whether we have helped to preserve the spiritual traditions that reveal the spiritual meaning of man and nature, how we should live 
and why, which uh, reminds me quite a bit of uh, Rod Dreher's book, Live Not By Lies, where he documents the experiences of uh, a kind of Christian underground in the Soviet bloc in the 50s, 60s, and 70s, individuals who wanted to preserve their faith um, and were or had very little power to affect political change. Um, and as we're hurtling into these dark times ahead of us, um, I don't think Vers Lewis is saying that we should, you know, necessarily keep quiet about our views, um, but to be circumspect about it, certainly. Um, and above all, to prioritize uh, our own um, communication, communion, uh, um, connection, growth, um, and uh, just being a, a kind of representative of what we feel is most divine uh, in existence. So another so you're saying, good- So you're saying we can't own the libs? <laughs> <laughs> yes, you, you can. No, you can own the libs, just not to their faces. Because <laughs> yes, be nice. Okay. Yes. Oh. Especially if it's going to assist you in. Yes. <laughs> so you can burn them. Can't we all just get along? <laughs> well, Boma actually said the way to the way to to respond to the devil is through like basically insulting him and making fun of him. Um, you know, with sarcasm. So we'll get to that in another, another time. Yes. <laughs> Ridicule. Yeah. All right. But that sounds like a, like a good final, <clears throat> final warning. <laughs> so uh, thanks again, uh, everybody for listening and uh, tuning in and uh, till next time.